Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though Christ were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, in the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour, now is the day of salvation. Emma, thanks very much indeed. Do keep uh, your Bibles open, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. And uh, if you find it helpful, uh, you might like to dig out the, um, the sermon outline uh, that you were given on the way in uh, on the white sheet. And then as we get ready, let's uh, pray together. We've sung, Heavenly Father, how sweet the sound of saving grace, and it is so sweet. Thank you very much indeed for this glorious gospel of grace. And because it is so sweet, help us, please, not to be selfish and to keep it to ourselves. And we ask you, therefore, to motivate us to be tellers of the sweet, saving grace to others. In Jesus' name, amen. I uh, travelled down to London on Monday uh, for a meeting. I I just um, uh, happened to have to go down and uh, boarded the train and as I picked, um, uh, uh, as I went uh, onto the train, I picked up a copy of the Metro, where this story caught my eye. Um, the photos show holidaymakers in Magaluf running out of the sea to get away from an eight-foot shark in the water. The report says, uh, rather understatedly, bathers were ordered out of the sea. Well, I bet they were. I imagine the Coast Guard shouting at people swimming in the sea, screaming at the top of his voice to get out of the water. I guess he didn't mince his words or worry about upsetting or frightening people. I guess as he screamed at them, he knew that he was doing them a favour. He was saving their lives. 
The story grabbed my attention for two reasons. First, because it's a cracking story. No one was hurt. Everyone got out alive. And I can imagine holidaymakers telling and retelling the story for many years to come. Have I told you about the time that I was nearly eaten by a shark? Cracking story. But the second reason it grabbed my attention, and the reason I mention it today, is because when I read it, I was thinking about our Bible passage this evening. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul knows that men and women and boys and girls are in danger, not from a shark, but from the wrath of God. And so he tells people, in no uncertain terms, to get to a place of safety. That is the whole thrust of this section of the Bible. See how it begins, verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade people. That's how it begins. See how it ends. On the same note, verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The whole section is about telling people to get right with God. And look at the strength of the words Paul uses in this passage. Verse 11, Paul tried to persuade men and women to become Christians. Verse 14, he was compelled to tell others about Jesus. Verse 20, he implored people to be reconciled to God. Chapter 6, verse 1, he urged his listeners to follow Christ. Chapter 6, verse 2, he says, become a Christian today, now. Don't even put it off for another day. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. Don't delay. It seems Paul would do everything he can to persuade people to become followers of Jesus Christ. He is as urgent for their spiritual well-being as if they were in the sea with an eight-foot shark just metres away. And that has hit me this week as I've studied this passage because I reckon it's very different to how most of us relate to our unbelieving friends and neighbours and colleagues and family. Most of us, most of the people in front of me that I know most of you well enough to know that you do want to tell your friends about Jesus. But we do find it remarkably difficult. When when we do pluck up the courage to say something, my guess is that we're quite hesitant. We present the gospel as an option. We suggest to people that they might like to look into it. We might be bold enough to tell people that the gospel is a better option than the way they're living. But I guess we don't feel compelled to try to persuade and urge and implore people not to put it off for another second. But men and women and boys and girls are in mortal danger. Without Christ, everyone we meet is in the spiritual equivalent of those holidaymakers in Magaluf inches away from spiritual death, facing God's judgment. The tragic events of this, of this nation in these last weeks tell us that everyone is much closer to death than we care to believe. If children and teenagers are, not, are going to a pop concert are not safe, if walking across a London bridge or sitting having a drink in a bar is not safe, if going to bed at night in your own home is not safe then none of us can assume that it will be years before we come face to face with our maker and judge. And it is indeed that thought of God's judgment that is first, the first thing that Paul mentions in this section. We come to our first point on the handout. The fear of God, we, we persuade people. Look how Paul starts this section, verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. We don't often talk about fearing God these days, but it's a thoroughly biblical idea and a thoroughly biblical response to God. 
And I reckon there are two aspects to the fear of God here in this passage. The first one being this, and this is the dominant one in this passage, and it is that Christians should fear the Lord. I fear my wife. Now, those of you who know Caroline will be surprised to hear me say that. For those of you who don't know her, I need to explain what she's like so that you're not left with the wrong mental image of her. When I tell you that I fear Caroline, please don't imagine that I'm married to a woman who is built like a Russian shot putter or a sumo wrestler. And please don't think that she has a violent temper. You know, the sort of woman who brandishes a rolling pin if ever I'm late home. Caroline is neither supersized nor supercharged. Now, what I fear about Caroline is doing something that would let her down or disappoint her. I mean something really serious that would leave her completely distraught and destroyed. I don't even like thinking in the way I'm now going to speak, but I'll say it just to make the point. I couldn't bear to see the look on her face if ever I had to tell her that I'd had an adulterous affair. I would fear seeing the look in her eyes as she said to me, how could you do that to me? I fear breaking her heart. And in that sense, we should fear the Lord. You see, verse 11 comes after verses 9 and 10. Look at verse 9. Since we make it our goal to please the Lord, whether we're at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Even Christians will have to face Jesus as our judge. Now, don't misunderstand this. We've already sung what I'm about to say. It's not a judgment where we fear for our salvation. We have no fear of that. No, Jesus has secured our standing before God through his sacrificial death on the cross. We don't fear the judgment of hell. But we do fear letting Jesus down. So, verse 9, we make it our goal to please him. That, of course, is what we do when we love people. And so, verse 11, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade people. It's, It's this picture. It's as if we're on that final day in history when we will have to give an account for the way we've lived, not because our salvation is in doubt, but Jesus will want to say, what have you done with your life? And if we haven't been bothered to tell people about Jesus, it will disappoint him. He will say to us, Christian, I died for you. You benefited from the joy of knowing forgiveness and the certainty of eternity beyond the grave. You knew the gospel, but you didn't bother to tell others. Or when you did, you were half-hearted and more concerned about your own reputation. If you see, to hear that would be devastating. We know what it is to fear the Lord. We want to please him, so we try to persuade men because we know that's what he wants for them. The second aspect of the fear of the Lord is one that we probably know more more often, but I don't think it's the dominant thing here, but it's worth noting, and that is that unbelievers should fear the Lord. See, if as Christians we fear disappointing the Lord, then unbelievers should have a fear of meeting Almighty God because they've pushed him out of their lives all their lives. We've taken all the good things that God gives us, fun, food, friendship, sun, sea, skiing, God gives us so many good things every day throughout the whole of our lives and we take the good things God gives us but largely ignore him and that leaves us estranged from God. Look, I don't like it when people treat me like that. When they want the things I can give them but they don't want anything to do with me, when people treat me like that, I feel as if I'm being used and it is no different with God. 
And so when people virtually have nothing to do with him all their lives, they are like swimmers in the water with a shark. And so we should fear for their safety. And so, verse 11, we should try to persuade them to turn to Jesus, who is the only one who can give us, any, any of us, forgiveness and a right relationship with God. Now, this word persuade there in verse 11 is a very strong word that was probably being used against Paul. See, as we've considered over these last weeks, Paul uh, wrote this letter uh, to the church in Corinth because the church was massively influenced, seduced even, by a group who'd set themselves up as leaders in the church. Paul refers to them uh, in chapter 11 as super-apostles. They were a bunch of of smooth-talking, proud and, and powerful characters. They boasted of amazing spiritual experiences. They were great orators. Their sermons were brilliantly crafted. And they rather looked down on Paul, who by his own admission in this letter was not the greatest preacher in the world. And so these, these false teachers, these charismatic personalities, were critical of Paul's rather crude method of trying to persuade people to become Christians. When he spoke, he sounded a bit desperate. See, the word persuade here in verse 11 has the idea of almost of cajoling people. And so the false teachers would say, uh, there's no subtlety about Paul. He's just not sophisticated, no soft sell. Paul tries to persuade people. How crude. See, frankly, he was a bit of an embarrassment to these small, smooth-talking leaders in the church in Corinth. And that is why Paul writes as he writes here. Seems the false teachers in Corinth accuse Paul of being out of his mind. So he says in verse 13, if we are out of our minds, it's for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. You see, the same is going to happen to us when we try to persuade people to become Christians. We'll encounter the same kind of response. We'll be accused as being nutters. Are you off your head? We'll certainly be accused of being dangerous fundamentalists, which is basically nutters. We'll be accused of being out of our minds to believe that there's a judgment day. What, you still believe in that? And here's the thing. I'm not even talking about what people outside the church do. I just remember years ago, shortly after I'd been ordained, Chris, being in a, a meeting with other, um, with other clergy, and I said that I believed in the, in the, in the judgment, and they looked at me as if, as if I was from another planet. Oh, no, we don't believe that anymore. See, this accusation was being thrown at Paul from those inside the church in leadership. I have a friend who is fearless when it comes to evangelism. I, I'm, I'm, I'm always amazed by him. He starts conversations with anyone and everyone he meets. And of course, sometimes people don't want to know, but he expects that. What he finds really sad is that there are people in the church who don't like his approach. They find it and him embarrassing because it's not very British, you see. But he keeps telling people because like the Apostle Paul, he's more concerned about pleasing the Lord. I've been really challenged by this. I think when I was first a Christian, I would tell anybody about the Lord Jesus. I would carry tracts with me and give them out. I would do anything I could to have a conversation. Now, of course, my evangelism is far more sophisticated, which actually means I just don't do it as much or with the same urgency. Now, of course, Paul is not advocating that we become insensitive. He's not looking for us to be like a bull in the china shop when it comes to evangelism. But that really isn't our danger, is it? 
We are so nervous about offending people with the gospel that we know virtually nothing of persuading and urging and imploring people to become Christians. And here, Paul says, to overcome that, we must think about the judgment. And what the Lord will say to us on judgment day. And we should fear the thought of not pleasing him. Indeed, more not pleasing him than pleasing other people. As we think about the judgment, it will focus our mind to think about the danger people are in. You see, how would you have reacted had you been on that beach in Magaluf? Would you have suggested to people, the other swimmers, that they might like to consider getting out of the water? You know, in their own time. Or would you have screamed at them to get out because there's a shark in the water? I realise there's a difference. You can see a shark and you can't see the wrath of God. I, I, I know that. So you see, to get this right, we need to imagine people before the judgment seat of Christ. I remember John Chapman, the Australian evangelist who died a few years back, telling a group of us at a, at a conference about judgment day, to think about judgment day. He said, imagine yourself on judgment day. The Lord Jesus is about to take you by the hand and lead you off to spend all eternity with him in the glorious new heavens and new earth. And as you're being led off, you, you, you look back and you catch the eye of some unbelievers that you know, but you never told them the gospel. And they see you being led off for eternity with Jesus as they are about to be led off to a lost eternity. And they catch your eye and they say to you, why didn't you tell me? The fear of God, we persuade people. Secondly, the love of Christ compels us to tell people. Verses 14 to 17. If the fear of the Lord and the judgment is the driving force behind people trying to persuade people to become Christians, then the deep, deep love of Jesus is the compelling force that drives people to, to give his life to tell people about Jesus. Verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. He's saying here, Jesus died for me. That's how much, how much he loves me and when I understand that love, it grabs me so that I'm compelled to respond in an appropriate way. He loved me enough to die for me so that I might have life and so, verse 15, the only right response is for me to be ready to die in the service of Jesus. No longer to live for myself, but for him. See, love changes people. I think of a bloke I knew who could be um, selfish and aggressive and moody. Say the wrong thing on the wrong day and he'd give you a mouthful. So you'd always find yourself tiptoeing around him. I mean, he might have been in a good mood, but you never knew when it was going to change. So you're always on edge in case he went off on one. But then he met a girl. And he was swept off his feet and he changed. Her unconditional love for him made him feel secure and it completely changed him. Love changes people. And certainly knowing the love of Christ is a life changer. So that verse 15, I no longer live for myself, but for Jesus who died for me and was risen from the grave. It's exactly what Jesus himself said. He said, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would come after me, 
he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If anyone's going to follow me, says Jesus, you've got to be ready to die for me. Why will you do that? Because he first died for you. He died for me. The right response is I die for him. That's what Paul is saying here. And in this context, it means being ready to tell people about Jesus, whatever it costs me. Even if people think I'm mad, out of my mind, verse 13. I don't care about my reputation, says Paul. The love of Christ compels me to tell people about Jesus, even if people in the church think that I'm a bit too keen. So at work, when I have great career opportunities... And speaking about Jesus might be detrimental to my chances of promotion. The love of Christ compels me to speak out about Jesus. At school or or uni, when I want to be accepted by my friends and I know that telling them about Jesus might see them rejecting me, I'll do it anyway. The love of Christ compels me to tell people the gospel. And when we think about the the chance to to plant a church in Doncaster, it might be inconvenient to move house and leave friends and become part of a new church family, but I'm ready to deny myself and make those sacrifices to take up my cross. The love of Christ compels me. And it compels me because the gospel not only changes my life's priorities, but it changes the way I look at everyone I meet. Look at verse 16. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we we do so no longer. Uh, Paul says that uh, once he became a Christian, it changed the way he viewed people. As a Christian, Paul saw everyone that he looked at as either, if I can put it this way, spiritually dead or spiritually alive. And that changed the way he responded then to everybody he met. When you, when you look at people you know, your friends, colleagues, neighbours, family, how do you assess them? Do you weigh them up as a success or failure based on their education, their sporting achievements, the house they own, the car they drive, the holidays they take? How do you categorise people? How nice they seem, how trendy they are, their manners, how refined they appear to be? Paul is very clear. He sees no one in those categories anymore. That is to regard someone, verse 16, from a worldly point of view. No, Paul regards everyone as either spiritually dead or alive. And then seeing them that way affects how he responds to them with the gospel. Christians seem to have a mental block on this, and not least of all when it comes to family and friends, and especially family. Listen to the way some Christian parents speak of their children. Oh, how's Mary doing, you might say. Oh, she's the first woman to be made an executive in the multinational company that she works for. And John, who is a consultant surgeon now, yes, he's done very well. I'm told he's quite brilliant in his field. We're so proud of them both. And are they still going on with the Lord? Well, you know, life's busy for them at the moment. Their careers and their families take up a lot of time. But, you know, we're so proud of them. Speaks volumes. That is regarding people from a worldly point of view. Quite different from Paul, verse 17. He thinks of people either as new creations or old. Now, please don't get me wrong. Of course, it's quite legitimate for Christian parents to be proud of their children's achievements. But if we glory in worldly success and are not devastated that those we love reject the Lord, we've got something wrong. 
If we regard people from a worldly point of view and see them as people with great prospects ahead of them or satisfied with their lot, if we see people as successful and happy and well-adjusted, we'll not tell them the gospel. We won't think they need it. But if we see them as spiritually dead, in great danger, facing judgment, then the love of Christ will compel us to tell them about Jesus. The fear of God, we persuade people. The love of Christ compels us to tell people. Thirdly, the role of ambassadors, we implore people to be reconciled to God. That's verses 18 to 21. As you look at these verses, uh, these last verses in this chapter, the, the, the word reconciliation is the dominant word. You don't have to be very clever to see that. It's all over these verses. And the reason the word reconcilia- reconciliation is there is the big problem for every man and woman and boy and girl who ever walks this planet is that we are estranged from God. Our relationship with God has been broken, ruined because of sin. Because we have largely ignored God, we are not in a good place with him. Our relationship with him has been ruined. And it can only be repaired through the death of Jesus, verse 18. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, See, there's a striking thing. When we become Christians, we're not only reconciled to God, but God gives us a ministry, this ministry of reconciliation. Almost every Christian I know says that uh, it is, they find it hard to tell people about Jesus for all sorts of reasons. We could begin to list the reasons, but here's one. Often people, Christians, don't feel they ought to be speaking about Jesus because they don't feel they have the right to speak about Jesus. One person said it to me like this. What right do I have to tell people to change the whole direction of their lives and to start following Jesus instead? I often hear people teaching that we need to earn the right to tell people about Jesus, by which they mean we need to befriend people and love them and do life with them before we can then tell them the gospel. Now, of course, doing all that is good, but look again at the second half of verse 18. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What right do you and I have to go and tell people about Jesus? Verse 18, it's a God-given right. God has given you the right. He's given you and I the ministry of reconciliation. Do you have to earn the right to tell people the gospel? No, God has given you the right. We have been given that ministry of reconciliation. And that ministry is to tell people the message of reconciliation. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now again, don't mishear me. Of course, it is good to spend time with people and to do life with people for all sorts of reasons. But don't think you have to wait to tell people about Jesus. If you're a Christian here tonight, you have a really exalted place. You are an ambassador. That's what we read uh, in verse 20. You are an ambassador. When I worked in London's West End, there were, there were a number of embassies around the area, quite a number and from time to time, as part of my job, I met the ambassadors. I have to say, I was quite overwhelmed by them when I thought of their status and influence. The ambassador is the official appointed representative of the queen or the king or the president or the prime minister of the country they represent. And so when an ambassador speaks, they do so with all the authority of the king himself. Now, how about that? I know some of you are wondering what you're going to do with the rest of your life, thinking about great career opportunities. 
If you're a Christian, here's one you've been given already. Ambassador to the king. Ambassador to King Jesus. When you proclaim the gospel, you are on his majesty's service. That gives you all the right that you need to speak out. The message of the gospel you and I speak comes with the authority of the king of the universe. Verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Isn't that amazing? As we speak the gospel, God is speaking. Isn't that incredible? Sometimes people say to me when I preach, it's just as if God was speaking to me. It's because he was. God was speaking to them. God is making his appeal through us. And the God of the entire universe so wants people to come back to him that, do you see it there in verse 20? He implores people to be reconciled to himself. He's begging you to come back to him. That's how much, people got, uh, that's how much God wants people back. And so as ambassadors, that should mark our, our evangelism. And finally, the heart of the message is there in verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it astonishing? The Lord Jesus, the, the only one who ever walked this planet without sin, became sin as he died on the cross. So that if we, if we will take this, this swap, this great exchange, he will take our sin and I can take his righteousness. It's a wonderful thing to know. So let me ask you this evening, if you're a Christian, are you telling it? If you'd been on that beach in Magaluf, you'd surely plead with people to get out of the water because of the danger. What's the difference with the gospel? Christian, give your life to telling people about Jesus Christ. Even if, and they will, but even if they think you're mad, they will think you're mad. But they won't think you're mad on judgment day. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, thanks for coming and thanks for listening. I need to ask you, are you reconciled to God? I'm not asking you if you go to church or if you're religious or if you attend a Bible study group. I'm not asking you if you call yourself a Christian or if you're a good person or if you think God exists. I'm asking you, are you reconciled to God? And if you're not sure, the chances are you're not reconciled to God if you're not sure whether you are. And this evening, on Christ's behalf, I beg you, I plead with you, to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, I beg you, do not put it off another day. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation, chapter 6, verse 2. Please do not let the day end before making sure that you are right with God. And if you don't know how to do that, please speak to me before you leave. I'll be on the door. Let's pray together. How sweet the sound of saving grace. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All this is from God 
who reconciled us to himself through Christ. As we thank you for this glorious gospel, we pray that the, the fear of facing you one day, Lord, and not having told people, and the astonishing love of Christ would compel us to persuade and urge people to respond uh, to you favorably. Please uh, stir us up and give us the urgency we need, not just now, but tomorrow and the day after uh, with our friends and neighbors and colleagues and family who don't know the Lord Jesus. And we ask it all in his name. Amen.